This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Travel? Well, it's, it's something we haven't been able to do. We can dream about doing that. Some people turn their dreams into realities, and travel is not just around the corner, down the block, or to someplace sunny and warm. Travel could be when you look up into the sky and you wonder, I wonder what's out there. Well, our next guest has found that out on three different occasions, has spent 166 consecutive days in space, and has turned his experiences into so many different things. There is a coffee table book that you have to have that Colonel Chris Hatfield took pictures of when he was on the International Space Station, and those pictures downloaded, and they wound up being this incredible collection. But we want to talk about a different book that has been written, a thriller, and it will come out later this year. But please welcome to London Live, Colonel Chris Hatfield. Colonel Hatfield, great to speak with you. Hey, Mike, it's a pleasure to be talking to you. I hope it's a sunny day in London today. You know what? It's not too bad. Hit and miss. Every once in a while, you get that that sun. What is sun like in space? Is it because it feels so good here? You've got no cloud interference, but at the same time, is it always there or or not always there? It's it's uh, a few different things that on Earth, Mike. One is um, it's intensely hot because there's nothing between you and the sun. But, but maybe a couple layers of glass on the window in your spaceship, like there's no atmosphere or anything to dull it. So when you when you come around the corner and suddenly a beam of sunlight is on you, you know, it, it's like you're just being uh, irradiated. And then the other thing is um, here on Earth, we're used to sort of the sunlight getting scattered by the atmosphere. So the whole sky lights up and the whole area around the sun sort of glows. But when you're in space, of course, it's an empty vacuum. So the sun hangs like a light bulb in the blackness, you know, like maybe a street light on a huge black open area. So it's kind of weird to have this incredibly bright, hot thing. And yet um, it's there um, suspended magically in, in the blackness. So, yeah, it's a little different. You've been able to walk outside of whatever it was that was containing you in space. What is the temperature of a spacesuit like? Does it feel cold in any way? Does it feel body temperature like? What's that like? Well, when you're outside, um, there's nothing to, to move the heat around. Like like right now, if you look at a thermometer out the window, you know, whatever it's showing today, it's it's just picking up the air temperature. Uh, and you know when the sunlight gets on the thermometer, it, it gets hotter. Well, space is sort of like that. The side of your body that's in the sun is incredibly hot, like it's plus 160 Celsius, you know, so one and a half times the temperature of boiling water. But the part of your body that's in the shade is minus 150 Celsius. So, and and the suit that we wear to do a spacewalk, it's just cloth. You know, it's multi-layered cloth, but it's... It's not made of anything magic. You know, it's like a, an incredible snowmobile suit. And uh, and so you just like you would if you were uh, lying on a red hot stove with dry ice on your back, you can feel the cloth picking up that temperature. So one side of your legs is hotter than boiling water and the other side of, of the leg tube is uh, is like dry ice. And and so you keep your legs in the middle, you know, because it's uh it's not a, an easy temperature. And your hands, anything you pick up, if you grab a set of ice grips or something, 
that have been in the sun, those vice grips could be, you know, way boilingly hot, hotter than boiling. And, and so um, you have to be really thoughtful about the uh, the differences of, uh, of space versus your, your normal experience on Earth. And there you are doing incredibly delicate work <laughs> in those conditions. Yeah. Yeah, I helped build Canadarm2 out there. Yeah, it was it was built all across Canada, of course. Uh, there's even a place in Milton near where my folks live that built some parts for it. Little, little you know, machine shops and software labs right across Canada built that thing. Uh, but I was the guy who put it together uh, on orbit and, you know, unfolded it, bolted it together, wired it up, all that stuff. And, uh, yeah, so that's what we were doing in this great sort of uh, final installation, uh, you know, high-altitude uh, power job, um, but, you know, wearing a snowmobile suit and hockey mittens uh, and being weightless the whole time. It's a strange place to do um, to do delicate work. Well, we mentioned you are here around the world in 92 minutes, and some of the things that you've been able to put together for us since returning from space – Let's talk about what you have done recently, because you've written a novel. This is not, okay, here's how space works. This is not all of the little mysteries that you know and most of us have no idea about. You've written a novel. Where'd this come from? Yeah, it's called The Apollo Murders, and it's it's a uh, a space thriller. I mean, it's, it's, it's like... A, I don't know what the people that are listening read, but, you know, it's more like Hunt for Red October or, or that style of book. Um, and if you think about the time when we were going to the moon, you know, as a, as a planet, like from 69 to 72, just just before Christmas of 72, that was the Cold War was pretty intense. And, and the anti-Soviet feeling, the, the Soviet anti-American feeling it was very strong. You know, I used to be a fighter pilot intercepting Soviet bombers that were practicing cruise missile launches on North America. So that was going on. And the uh, the Soviets at the time had a secret space station, and there was a military astronaut program, uh, manned orbiting laboratory, and there was a military Soviet astronaut or cosmonaut program, and all that stuff was going on. And so when... When um, I had the idea for this book, I, I wondered if maybe I could put all that together and, and and tell a story. But I think, actually, Mike, it's going to do the first part of what you said. Because I've flown in space three times, and I, I know pretty much everybody who's ever flown in space, you know, right back to the, to the early cosmonauts and the early Mercury astronauts and such, um, I think people are going to learn a lot reading the book, just for what it's actually like and what do we face and what are all the little stuff that you have to do every day and what's the personal experience and what do you wonder about and, and what's a space like a spacewalk really like so all that naturally ends up in the book but i think what what's been the most fun for me and i think what'll be the most fun for the people reading the book is the whole arc of the story and what, what might have been you know if things had gone just slightly different than than uh, you know nixon's decisions and oh yeah and the book is full of of course real characters you know over half of the characters in the book end up being real people because because it's all based on real events so so um so it's been really interesting to write and and i'm just before i was talking to you mike I, i'm just uh, i'm in chapter what am i in chapter 84 of uh of my final rewrite and then i'll be handing it to the publishers here pretty soon for, so they can start doing the final edit and and get it ready for release in october but uh yeah so it's a great stage and, I'm, and these are the final exciting action scenes so my my brain's full of the book right now 
Well, hey, thank you for taking some time out because it's fine to talk during writer's block. I hope you didn't have any of that, but uh, I hope we're not taking you away from, from too much here. Colonel Chris Hatfield joining us. Now, in using real people, do you need to get permission to do that? Well, that was one of my questions, too. I was like, hey, can I just, you know, write about Nixon or Haldeman or whomever? And um, the consensus is, yeah, uh, so long as you're not slanderous, you know, uh, as long as you rely on real events. And obviously, if the person has passed away or if it's a long time ago, then there's there's less concern. Um, And since it's 73, I mean, that's quite a while ago. And and it's not like I'm I'm, you know, saying horrible negative things about people they're just characters in the book and i so i've worked really hard to try and dig into how those people would have actually reacted to all of the things that happened in the apollo murders and why they would have done them and even a lot of my little characters are are real people um because uh i i think it's better that way you know i there, there have been some terrible space movies and and terrible space books and what really bothers me the most is that they don't try to get the people right, you know, or, or, or they just ignore physics. So, so I've worked really hard to tell the story well, but also to get all of the details so that it's, it's absolutely plausible. Every single one of these things is based in reality and could have happened. Um, and then my, my uh, created characters are just interwoven into the, the fabric that already exists. And it's made a, a huge amount of work. I'm very thankful for the Internet because I, <laughs> I have uh, many thousands of pages of research to build this book. But uh, but I'm really proud of the results. I, I have a few very select um, readers who are pre-reading it for me right now. And even people who have no interest in techno and who aren't space people, they're like just bugging me. Come on, I want the last six chapters. I got to know what happened. So, so that's, that's really reassuring to me. That is a great sign. We're talking with Colonel Chris Hatfield. We're talking about the Apollo murders, which will be published in October of this year, so we can look for it then. Colonel Hatfield, what is the premise around it? Obviously, there are some real-world tie-ins, but what's happening? Uh, well, I sure don't want to give the story away, but if you if you remember, of course, uh, the Apollo program uh, was the American great um, moon successful moon race. The Apollo 11 landed on the moon. And then the very last Apollo flight was Apollo 17, uh, which uh, just before Christmas of 72. Um, and they had actually built rockets for Apollo 18 and 19. Um, but Nixon canceled the program when he first came into office. So those rockets never got used. And so all that stuff is out there. And so if you're going to write a book, obviously, about uh, a mission that didn't happen, you choose Apollo 18 or Apollo 19. And that's what I did. And then I looked into great detail of what the Soviets were doing at the time and what was actually happening and what were the pressures and and then and and then what were some of the discoveries that were going on um you know in earth orbit and on the moon and and then how could you weave a whole plot into that 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 holds together um and and sort of it becomes a proxy of the cold war and and that's how the whole book is put together but uh, every you're going to be surprised where the story ends up. Um, but uh, I really just started with the premise of the title, The Apollo Murders, uh, oh. and then thought, thought about how to, how to tell that whole story. And I, I'm, it's been hugely demanding uh, on my time. I've been writing, you know, full time, basically seven days a week. Um, I get up early and I write from about seven in the morning till after lunch. 
um, every day um, since, I don't know, since April, I guess. Uh, but now I'm almost at the end of it where I'm into my final rewrite. And my wife was asking me, what are you going to do when you finish the book? And I'm like, I don't know. I think I'm going to take a break. And she said, <laughs> well, you, you should write a sequel. <laughs> like, what do you think? I need a break. But you... Actually, I, I've done a lot of different things in my life, but I'm very much enjoying telling the story of spaceflight and all of the things that we've actually done, but then interweaving in it what, what we might have done. And and the areas, you know, because I was a test pilot and an engine, I was a test pilot with the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy and the Royal Canadian Air Force to be able to tie all those different ideas together. I, yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm enjoying this phase of life and I'm enjoying writing and hopefully people will uh, will like the Apollo murders as well. Can't wait. Again, comes out in October. We're talking with Colonel Chris Hadfield. One last thing. Wasn't it the Apollo missions that first got you interested in becoming an astronaut? Isn't that where it kind of sunk in? Yeah, Mike, and I think what's what's quite interesting as well is we're, we're on our way back to the moon again now. Um, two Canadians have already been uh, designated to, to go to the moon uh, on, on American ships. And the ships that, you know, that part, well, some of the ships are going to be flying on are being built by two other people that were hugely influenced when they were kids by the Apollo program. And that's Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. Both of them were just fascinated with the possibility of exploring the rest of the universe. And it's not like Jeff Bezos wanted to be a package delivery guy or Elon Musk wanted you know, to be a PayPal guy, both of them were hugely inspired by what was just barely possible. You know, sort of like I was as a kid here in Canada. And uh, I mean, Elon comes from South Africa. He lived out in Saskatchewan for a while and, and went to Queens for a while. But um, they, you know, they found their various roots of their Apollo inspirations to then do all the other things. And both of them have formed rocket companies. And it's going to be the two of them, I think, that are really helping to lead the, the global effort to depths of you know human exploration and settlement so to me it all ties together a really interesting story and it's really nice that that canada's in the thick of it you know that that our space agency the canadian space agency and businesses i forget the numbers it's like twenty thousand people in a five billion dollar business for canada you know it, it's a big deal and and so uh, if i can help tell the story whether it's playing music or or writing factual stories about it or, or writing fiction about what just might have been then uh, you know I'm delighted to be in that position now, Colonel Hatfield. It's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time. Congratulations on what you have done so far, and uh, good luck on the final rewrites. Thanks, and and my sister lives there in London. I just want to say hi to Pat and her family there in uh, in London also. Uh, and thanks, thanks for the. I'll take all the luck I can get. We all should. Keep safe. All right. You too. Take care. Thank you. That's Colonel Chris Hatfield. One of the most amazing individuals that this country has ever produced. And now he is putting together what is being called a thriller in space. And we'll see exactly how things come together once it is published. And you can look for it October of 2021. The Apollo Murders. It is set in 1973, as Colonel Hatfield points out, and there's Cold War effects, there's the space race going on, the Apollo missions. So if that is something that interests you, if we're still sitting around and, and still not quite back to normal, or or maybe this can be the first book that you read 
after we do return to some kind of normal. Maybe it'll have progressed to that point. Uh, whatever it is, this is one that if you have any interest in space, get your hands on If we go back in time a little bit, we go back to May 23rd of 2019. What did you have for breakfast that day? I have no idea what I had for breakfast. Barely remember this morning. But had oatmeal this morning with dates. So there. Is there a prize for that? Uh, but on May 23rd, 2019, our own Andrew Graham published a story at globalnews.ca. And it said... London, Ontario researchers may soon offer a glimpse into the future of mental health care. And at that point, there was a study that was being announced. And it was being done through Lawson Health Research Institute. And it was looking at smart technology. So even smart technology of 2019. Think of where we've come in the last two years. But smart technology and how it might be able to assist anyone who is suffering from mental illness. And what it did was it took eight affordable housing units from the Canadian Mental Health Association and London and Middlesex Community Housing, and it outfitted them, and then they were able to say, okay, how's this working? How is this over here working? What does it do? What does it mean? And guess what? The results of that study were announced this morning at 10 a.m. And we're going to dig into those in just a minute. This It's a little bit different than the coffee study we were talking about because that began in 1948. And it has wrapped up and shown that a cup of black coffee a day through three generations of people. I tweeted this out earlier at Stubbs980 if you want to take a look at the study. But a cup of black coffee a day. Black is actually good for heart health. That's what they have picked up on and published. So after a study that has gone on for now almost 73 years, they have decided that a cup of black coffee a day is good. What's that going to do? Likely make the lines at Tim Horton's drive throughs a little bit longer, don't you think? I'm, I'm doing it for my health. You know, I, I have to. I have to get this. It's important. It's It's good for me. I know the debate goes back and forth on coffee, but actually, as we said earlier, if you look back in time, it, you have to look a long way back to try and find some of the studies that were suggesting coffee was not good for you. And some researchers who've been asked the question, okay, you've, you've done some studies on coffee and you're finding it's good for you. What about these other ones? They'll say, well, maybe they didn't look at the lifestyle that coffee drinkers 30 and 40 years ago were living. And maybe that had some kind of an effect because some of the latest research is showing that there is a positive for heart health because you do have things like antioxidants and you know, I'm not going to break down the chemistry of coffee because I'm not a chemist and I don't even drink a lot of coffee. So I'll just leave that with you and you can check out the study at Stubbs 980. Let's talk about the study that wrapped up and the study whose findings were presented this morning. The one that was announced in May of 2019. Please welcome to London Live with us right now, Dr. Cheryl Forchuk 
who is the Richard Ivey Research Chair in Aging Mental Health, Rehabilitation and Recovery, and an Assistant Director at Lawson Health Research Institute. Dr. Forchuk, thanks so much for taking some time for us. Oh, thank you for having me. Glad to, glad to discuss this latest project. Well, this is great because a lot of times we'll talk about a study that is beginning and you think, oh, that, yeah, that sounds really, really interesting. And then you think, I wish we could fast forward to the end of it and find out what it discovered. We're able to do that right now. So, Absolutely. again, if we rewind time, as we had illustrated, you were able to, with the help of Canadian Mental Health Association and London and Middlesex Community Housing, you outfitted eight affordable housing units. Yes, what with, did you outfit with 13, them with? Yeah, 13 people, but eight different locations. Okay, featuring 13 people. So what did it mean to outfit them? What happened? So what, what we happened is we want to look at this idea of smart homes. And if you think of it in terms of technology, we're hearing, you know, people think about smartphones, um, virtual visits with just a tablet. And if you think of that's like a medium dose, what about the people that have a higher need for technology, have more complex, higher needs? So we were looking at um, multiple devices and pulling it together. So not just those tablets or um, phones, but also things like uh, like the Fitbit type of thing, like an activity tracker, weigh scales, um, in, in some cases, medication dispensers. Uh, so looking at a number of uh, devices that could help support someone who had a very high level of both mental health and physical health issues that they were struggling with um, and who were in affordable housing, couldn't necessarily uh, afford to buy uh, some of the supports that somebody else might might get and, and integrate them all together for communication with the care provider. Fantastic. Okay, so what was the idea in, you know, observing what took place? How did you do that? So, so, um, so what we, what we did is like, so this was a demonstration project. And that's why we were only eight places with 13 people. Prior to that, we had uh, some demonstration apartments, one at the Parkwood Mental Health Building and another one uh, at the Southwest Center in St. Thomas. Uh, where we tried to see could we get all these devices to connect, which worked well, and we found out from people in the hospital as they were leaving what they would like. What we wanted to demonstrate is what about different kinds of housing? What if it's a group home? What if it's a family? Uh, what if it's someone living alone in the community? What if it's roommates uh, where you might not want to, uh, the two people to see each other's information? So what we wanted to do is see if we could get this to work with different kinds of housing arrangements. Um, and a lot of that was because although you, you keep hearing about, we all hear about smart homes, we hear about marketing for smart homes, but when we look at the literature on the impact of health, it's practically absent. So when we started the study, there had been a recent Cochrane Review, which is a, a, a group that sort of looks at what's the best evidence in the literature, and they did one on health and smart homes, ended up being basically one page long, long saying there is no there is no studies that look at this. Um, so we thought we really need to start with the proof of principle, like is it even possible to do this and do it with the privacy and security 
required for data in healthcare, but also t- focus on these people with really high needs and see if, with only 13 people, you're you're not going to be looking for big effects. Uh, like it's not like a large study, but to see what what do they say about whether it helps or not. And basically, the really good news is people felt it helped a lot. Um, and that's what we uh, heard today from, uh, we have one of the speakers from Canadian Mental Health Association speaking uh, to what what they had heard. We, ha- we had the focus group's re- results. Uh, and so, for example, um, one of the issues with the medication, the medication dispensers, is when you're managing multiple medications, it's it's often difficult uh, and and people who have maybe having memory problems or disorganization on top of that, it can become very stressful. So some of the devices might be like a, a touchscreen monitor on the wall that could send reminders. But for people who needed more, we actually had an automated medication dispenser where the lights would be flashing, etc., uh, and and they could simply get the medication. Now, some of these people had healthcare providers come as often as four times a day to help them with their medication. Imagine what that means to someone's um, sense of autonomy or their freedom to you know what you know if you want to have a bath in the middle of the day, but now you're waiting for the next time someone's going to be knocking at your door. Um, so, like we found that. People found being able to have to have more autonomy and have these devices very personalized as to what each person wanted. Uh, really, uh, they found it was very empowering. Uh, we found that people, and again, it's a very small sample. We have to be cautious how far we interpret. Uh, but they talked about less visits to the ER uh, in our folks focus groups, people, the, the consensus with when we got the people together was that nobody had missed. Um, uh, they with this they had not missed medications at all uh hmm. essentially was uh what we were hear- hearing from people um and that they felt that this was the reason that they were now visiting the hospital less uh which was all good news so so a small sample a, a, a good variety but we were able to get these devices to connect we were able to do it with privacy and security and both the healthcare providers as well as the participants who got the devices uh, felt that it really made a difference to their life, that they felt more included, that their health was, um, 78% said that they felt the devices had improved their health. We're talking with Dr. Cheryl Forchuk, who is the Ivy Research Chair in Aging Mental Health Rehabilitation and recovery, and we're talking about a study that was done over the course of approximately two years, a little less than two years, at the Lawson Health Research or through the Lawson Health Research Institute, looking at smart technology and those who may have mental illness and what that means. So, medication is one area. Any other areas that you were able to look at, even if it's the course yep. well, the of most, what you do during the day? Yeah. The, the, so we gave we had we had a range of devices that were available, so like different forms of monitors, phones, weigh scales, Fitbits, um, and the dispensers. But the thing that um, people wanted the most was actually the Fitbits, like the activity trackers, uh, because that helps them monitor their sleep, uh, cardiac, heart rate, uh, as well as their fitness. And most of them um, had felt that improving their fitness was going to be a major 
uh, goal to improving their mental health. Uh, so that was actually, of all the devices, that was the, that was the most popular device, was having an activity tracker, which was a little bit surprising. Uh, and then as well, everyone had at least either the phone for um, uh, some sort of screen device, either something on the wall or, um, or a phone, uh, so that they could get prompts uh, and reminders and have these uh, secure virtual uh, communication with the care provider. Uh, so then what other devices uh, people had, uh, i say the next most common was, was weigh scales. And again, uh, because people were really wanting to look at that combination between physical and mental health and, and with their activity and trying to get themselves more healthy generally. Uh, so th- those were the major devices that people used. So, Dr. Forchak, what do you now do with this? How can this go from being, hey, this was very useful, may limit hospital visits, certainly cuts down on the number of times that someone might have to have a caregiver come to their home. What's the next step? Well, we we see several next steps. Um, one thing that's already happened, uh, particularly with Canadian Mental Health Association, they they found um, the medication dispensers so uh, working so well. They've actually continued that beyond the end of the study, but also extending it to other people um, because just because of of those results. So locally, we will continue to see the benefit. Uh, one of the things we um, the the seminar that we had today the, uh, was. Uh, co-led with the Ontario Peer Development Initiative, which is a consortium group of mental health consumer groups. Uh, And one of the reasons we did that is one of the things they would really like to see um, is the assistive device uh, legislation change to include uh, people with mental illness. Currently, that legislation is only for physical illness. So if you need wheelchairs, uh, blood glucometers, eyeglasses, and you're of low income, you can get that. But the act actually states physical illness. Um, and uh, they're feeling that with this and other studies, we're seeing that mental illnesses can also have assistive devices and that we need to expand that legislation. And then the other thing is researchers, what we feel is we need a broader uh, community study because because we were looking at diversity of housing types, but we couldn't look as much at diversity of people. So we we don't know, um, like one of the points raised, like for Indigenous housing, what, what would be the difference? If, if we're talking about refugee housing, would there be other different kinds of things that would be required, uh, different issues around cultural safety, uh, different kinds of um, situations? And obviously with, with three people, 13 people, you, we can't make any kind of generalization to even t- to understand who would benefit most, um, what, com- what changes would have to occur for specific subgroups. So we would like to see a larger community. Uh, now we've got the proof of principle, a, a, a larger community study uh, where we could also look at some of these subgroup needs and, and how we would need to tailor it for different groups. Well, this certainly is fascinating, and I'm glad that it had some really positive outcomes. And if this can be something that cuts down on hospital visits, cuts down on the number of times workers have to come, it cuts down on a number and gives, like you say, Dr. Forchuk, gives, gives someone some autonomy that, you know, you, you're, you're not always waiting for something to happen. Mm-hmm. You've got it. 
Right, right. And, and you can take control of it yourself. It's what you, you want. So even the prompts and reminders, people say, well, this is, this is how I want to, uh, I, I want to get this reminder. Uh, this is what would be useful for me. Well, we really appreciate the time and the update on the study. Dr. Forchuk, please keep safe. Okay, thank you. You stay safe as well. Bye. That's Dr. Cheryl Forchuk, Ivy Research Chair in Aging, Mental Health, Rehabilitation, and Recovery, and an Assistant Director at the Lawson Health Research Institute, as we recap a study that actually began back in May of 2019, and it dealt with employing smart technology, in 13 homes, or sorry, in eight homes featuring 13 individuals, and it looked at how, if you are suffering with experiencing mental illness, then you are able to make use of smart technologies and the impact and difference it can make in your life. And there's a lot of positives, as Dr. Forchuk just outlined, that have come out of it. Leafs, Canadians. Wednesday night, February the 10th. Is this exciting? Yeah, it actually is. It's, it is exciting. We're not making that up. This is an exciting game. This is for first place right now. And when you can go back in time to when the original six was on, sometimes the Leafs and the Canadians would battle for first place. Since then... I don't have we had a battle for first place past maybe the first I don't even think of the first month of a season. Two days? Look, the Leafs and the Canadians both won their first games now that they're back in the same conference. They're tied for first with six other teams. So I don't I don't think we've had this. This is now a thing again. This is hearkening back to the days of pre nineteen sixty eight, sixty seven. Joining us right now is a man who can help us to appreciate what tonight's game will be all about. And in fact, it isn't just tonight's game. Remember, they play on Saturday, too. He is the senior hockey writer for The Score, John Mattis. John, how are things? Good, Mike. I think uh, you're you're forgetting the 90s. They, they, you know, there was some back and forth there between the Habs and the Leafs, like, you probably know better than me because I was really young at the time, but when 93 happened, the Habs win the Cup, the Leafs go deep in the playoffs. I'm assuming at some point in that season they were battling for the top of the division, but I could be wrong. Well, um, I guess in the, in the overall maybe, but they were in different conferences back then, so it, it right, always kind of kept it apart. So the hope was they would meet in the Stanley Cup final, but that, that came close. It, it came to within a high stick that wasn't called on – Doug Gilmore, as we all know, but yeah, but okay, maybe in the overall, sure, they they would have been up there. But when you're looking at it from a division race or a conference race, maybe I've got to outline it that way. This this is big stuff, especially in February. Here's the question we need to know, and all Leaf fans will want to know this before we get to all Canadians fans, because I always look. Colin Hopper from Source for Sports says, as far as jersey sales in London, Ontario, it's Toronto one. Detroit 2, and number 3 is the Montreal Canadiens. Now, I haven't checked in with Hop in a little while on that, but that that was always what he said he would see. So Montreal is always right there. So, John, with regard to the Leafs, how good are they? That's a good question. Um, first of all, as you noted, you know, them being in the same division and, and being competitive, that is a super, super rare thing, and especially because we're talking about division filled with 
all Canadian teams, uh, you know, even like you look at any team doing well right now, are is it smoke and mirrors uh, to some extent because they're not leaving their division? They're playing the same teams over and over again. They're getting the number of a certain team uh, fairly often. Like, for example, the Leafs versus Vancouver. It's just been a, a bloodbath. Same with uh, with Montreal and Vancouver. So Vancouver's taking the brunt of that because these two teams have figured them out. They're better on paper anyways. And so you wonder how that skews things. But um, aside from that, I, I think I think the, the, the positive thing about this Leafs team is that they're winning one-goal one games. They're winning games that they shouldn't win. Uh, if they play poorly for two periods, whatever, 30 minutes, they still find a way to grind out a win, which you couldn't say about this group you know, in the Matthews-Marner era really often uh, throughout their tenure. So that's positive. I mean, some of it might be based on luck. As we know, hockey's a super random sport. One-goal games are, you know, if, if you if you win 20 one-goal games in a row, you know, how many of those are based on, you know, the other team hitting the post and whatnot. But so early in the season, you got to give them props for that. And, you know, defensively, they look better than they did previously. And some of that has to do with Kyle Dubas going out and getting a guy like, TJ Brody, um, Wayne Simmons has been great up front before he got injured there. Um, like the offseason moves have paid off, um, and Austin Matthews looks absolutely incredible up there with McDavid and McKinnon right now for best player in the world. And I know <laughs> some people listening might think I'm crazy, but I mean, if you watch this guy night in and night out, he's completely in control. He's actually, if you if you if you pace it out to or if you rate it out to 82 games, he's on pace for 75 goals, which is just incredible. And he won't keep that pace. I highly doubt it. But uh, what he's done so far is nothing short of remarkable. And that's just it. I mean, Austin Matthews and Connor McDavid, people should not laugh. Don't laugh when they are compared because Austin Matthews and Connor McDavid worked together in the summer, did a lot of workouts. And what are you seeing from Austin Matthews' game that maybe is more than just, hey, this guy shoots the puck really well? Yeah, um, I think he's just the full package now. You know, he leaned out a little bit in the summer. Uh, he Not that he needed to, really. I mean, he was already in great shape and, and wasn't necessarily heavy, but he found a way to sort of make his body, I guess, more efficient. And you can see that in his skating. He's he's still so big, though, at whatever he is, 215 pounds, six foot three, um, that he can knock guys over without trying very hard. So he's being a little bit more physical, you can see a, a huge step in his defensive game. And that shot that you mentioned, which is, is, is obvious to anyone who watches him for longer than 30 seconds, it's it's still almost one of a kind. The way that the puck comes off his stick, uh, the deception that he uses, the many ways that he's able to beat goaltenders, whether it's a you know one-timer on the power play or digging through the defense and then uh, you know going five-hole when it looks like he's going top shelf. He just has so many tricks in his bag. I guess that's the way I would put it. He's so versatile now. And I just think that he's one of those players. You put him with Crosby, McDavid, those great, great players, those superstar players. One guy who every offseason, you know, looks at what he's accomplished, what he brings to the table, what his skill set uh, is, is encompasses and says, I want to add this this summer and not lose any traction on all the things I already do well. And that just elevates you. So, um, right now, at least to me, it, it's McDavid, you know, best in the world. McKin McKinnon, unfortunately, has been injured. He's right up there with McDavid. And I think you, you got to give 
Matthews, uh, you know, uh, a good fighting chance at number three there with, with the likes of Dreisaitl and, and Crosby and whatnot. It's just, it, it's not a one-game thing, right? You know, we've seen this plenty from Matthews, and, and when they take that next step, you believe it because, you know, you're seeing the goal scoring, you're seeing uh, the playmaking continue while he adds more sort of layers to his game. John Matt is joining us, senior hockey writer for The Score. All right, well, we'll see how Austin Matthews progresses. Mitch Marner has been pouring in points. John, let's turn to the Montreal Canadiens because there are Canadiens fans in this part of the world. What exactly are we seeing from Montreal? How good are they? Well, uh, let's just pause for a second. I was actually looking at this earlier. The connections to the Knights and the London area is pretty off the charts with these two teams. You've got Josh Anderson, Nick Suzuki, Corey Perry, Victor Mete, Mitch Marner, John Tavares, Joe Thornton, Jake Muzzin. It's pretty crazy. Um, the amount of uh, you know support there might be for, for the Leafs uh, for obvious reasons and also for, for the Canadians for the local connections. Um, but in terms of the Habs, I mean, the main thing to me that I'm seeing you know this year versus last year or previous years is they're finishing their chances. And you know, that sounds really simple and, and maybe something that's not sustainable, but I think it is because they've always been strong in terms of producing shots, producing shot attempts, scoring chances. All that underlying data has been there. But, you know, aside from a guy like Brendan Gallagher, they, they weren't finishing. They didn't have those type of players, those type of weapons in their forward group. Now Tyler Toffoli comes on board. He's been a huge reason why they've turned those percentages around and, and started capitalizing more. And then Josh Anderson, um, you know, you don't have to tell someone who saw him come through uh, the London Knight system that he's not just this tall guy who, you know, can, can fight every once in a while or, or can throw his weight around. Like, he's got a tremendous amount of skill. He's really fast for his size. And I just think that Mark Bergman was really won the offseason in terms of, you know, acquiring a guy like Jake Allen to back up Carey Price because he knew it was going to be a gong show of a season. Uh, you know, just Joel Edmondson on the back end. Uh, again, insurance, not exactly a guy who's going to, you know, uh, you know, break, break through any sort of uh, big, um, make a big difference, make a big impact. And then up front, just added piece after piece after piece. So I think they, they just, they've always been a pretty good team if, if we're talking about the last few years, but, but not nothing special. And I think that what's sort of elevated them to new heights is the addition of a couple of scores and just continuing to play a brand of hockey that produces, you know, uh, I guess uh, the end results of, of the ice tilting in, in their favor. So that's what I'm seeing from, from the Habs. And, you know, a guy like Jeff Petrie, for example, really like hitting his peak, getting up there for the, the Norris Trophy. Shea the- or not Shea Theodore, Shea Weber's doing his thing. Uh, Suzuki's uh, taking another step. So, I mean, kind of like the Leafs where everything's going right at the moment, and that's not going to happen throughout the season, but... Both these teams have put themselves in such an enviable position at this point in the standings that it's almost a guarantee that they're going to make the playoffs. They provide for a great COVID break tonight, and COVID has not been a thing that's really affected the Northern Division. We're talking with John Mattis, senior hockey writer for The Score. John, just one more thing, and that is Canadian fans have been loving the Canadian Division. The question becomes, could anything be tweaked to at least keep some of this stuff what do you think will that even be a discussion or is the nhl just waiting until the day they can go back to what they have done for the last few years 
I mean, I think it should at least be a discussion because what we've learned so far is one, these sort of baseball style uh, series are are pretty nice. It produces better hockey because the guys aren't you know jet lagged and whatnot. Um, you know, you kind of develop some mini rivalries over a weekend, so that helps convince. Uh, teams of, of the travel that would be required for Vancouver versus Montreal, for example, a couple times a season where you just group it together. Maybe you go to Vancouver once or twice a year. Um, I think my only, the only counter argument to having an all Canadian division is, well, look, look what's happening this year in terms of the interest, especially, you know, in say a big media market like Toronto, it's all the North division. No one seems to be paying any attention to the other part of the league. So you're going to welcome in Seattle and then, you know, a lot of the attention isn't even going to be on them. So it's just interesting how, how that happens. And I think best case scenario, you probably go back to the normal divisions uh, so that the Canadian teams and, and the, the interest in Canada is spread across multiple divisions. Uh, I, that's my hunch. But but there's certainly, based on what we've seen so far, a case for, for continuing with this format. John, thanks so much for covering the league like you do. Enjoy tonight's game and keep safe. We'll chat again. Thanks, Mike. Have a good one. That's John Mattis. John is a senior hockey writer for The Score, and he likes what he sees from those Leafs and Canadians. But, yeah, you've got to look and say something's got to go wrong. You need some of that adversity, and has been pointed out by so many different people. It doesn't matter what the Leafs do in the regular season. It matters what happens in the first round of the playoffs because if they do well in the regular season and don't win that first round or don't go at least fairly deep second round against Montreal, anybody, then it's going to be the same old, same old. But they're a different team this year. They're constructed differently. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.